You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, without any further delay, I want to one more time uh, just introduce our speaker. We've, we've, Jan Johnson's just been pouring into us these last uh, few hours. Uh, yesterday, we had two great sessions on how transformation occurs, and then we talked about sp- scripture meditation and experiencing God in scripture. And then this morning at nine, we had a great session talking about practicing the presence of God. And then she's got one more session with us here this morning. And Jan is uh, just a nationally renowned writer, speaker, uh, protege of Dallas Willard, one of the most uh, influential minds and theologians and Christians in my life. And uh, Jan has just gleaned from his ministry and, and God is doing a wonderful work through her as well. And uh, so we've all enjoyed, how many of you have enjoyed Jan uh, this weekend? Amen. Wonderful. I've gotten so much great feedback, and so we're excited to maybe host her again one day. But one more time, give Jan Johnson a welcome from Village Church as she comes forward. Let's ask God to help us. Oh God, we thank you that you wanted to help us be so present to you, that you sent your son to live among us and to show us what it looks like to love people in an intentional way. And so help us now as we look at how Jesus did that and how you're inviting us to do that. So we ask for your help in the name of Jesus, in the presence of Jesus, and the great power of Jesus. Amen. So is there anybody here who likes interruptions? Can I see a hand? Nobody, anybody who likes interruptions? No, I'm not seeing one. Oh, we've got a hand. All right. Oh, you're very, he said he's very good at interrupting. That's not what I mean. But I wasn't clear, so it's my fault. So I'm thinking of how many of us like to be interrupted. And most of us do not because we want to get something done, right? And we have somewhere to go. And we have, um, we don't want to have to miss a meal for any reason. We don't want anything to cost us any money or time. This is all very frustrating. And yet service, the spiritual discipline of service takes two different forms. One is the times that you plan to meet. I'm thinking of your wonderful team that did the breakfast. They know their regular times, they work together. They all looked very happy. So they obviously know what it means to serve on a team. Your choir knows what it's like to serve on a team. And there's regular times where you show up to practice. There's also a form of service where you don't know what's coming next. And we think of Jesus. 
preaching in that synagogue and the roof started to disassemble. And they wanted to lower this, the four guys wanted to lower their friend down. And you can, you don't see Jesus going, make an appointment, which is what we would have felt like. And so I want us to look at service from those two different angles today, but mostly I want us to look at what is required for the inner life of the servant. Because service, when it's genuine, will flow out of the inner life. You see, that's the first point on your um, notes, which I don't know if I'll be following these notes very well, so we might as well hit the first point. Um, that doing flows out of being. Doing that just flows out of doing doesn't really work. It doesn't really connect with people. It's about having a right heart. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to start with um, a story that Jesus told in response to a young man who said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that word, Greek word eternal is such a lovely idea. It's not just length of life. Eternal, that Greek word aineos refers not, to, not only to how long we live, but the quality of life now in which we, and these are some quotes from some people who know more than me, who say that we experience here and now something of the splendor, the majesty, the joy, and the peace which are characteristic of God. That's what you and I are called to right now, that eternal kind of life where we're tasting daily of the love of God. Andrew Murray says it's a divine life, infinite energy, in irresistible power, infinite energy, so that eternal kind of life. So this young man asks that question, and it leads to Jesus saying, well, you know the law, love your neighbor, and he goes, yeah, but who is my neighbor? He's not headed for an eternal kind of life. He's, he's headed for a crabby life. And so Jesus tells this story that you're familiar with. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell in the hands of robbers. Now, this is right out of the headlines, because this happened all the time. And I have been to the Holy Land, and that road is really something. It curves, and it goes back and forth, and it's very steep. These robbers stripped this man of clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, this priest was probably just like you and me. He had somewhere he had to be, and when he got there, he needed not to be unclean in order to do the work that he had been assigned to do. And so this was what he thought was the best recourse. So to a Levite, this would be someone who really, really knew the law, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by the other side. Same thing, he didn't, he didn't want to show up at his job late. He didn't want to show up ill-prepared. He was being the kind of person you and I try to be. We show up, we do our thing. And then we have but a Samaritan as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Other versions say compassion. And, you know, he didn't take pity on him and say too bad. Instead, we have at least nine different things he did. 
He went to him and bandaged his wounds. Okay, so he's not going to be clean. What did he use to bandage the wounds? I don't think he carried bandages. Maybe pieces from his own clothing. Um, pouring on oil and wine. He must have had these things with him, as, but they were his. And now he was spending them on someone else. What if he would have needed them later? Then he put the man on his own donkey, so he's giving up his right to his animal, took him to an inn, so there's some going out of the way here, and took care of him. Very hands-on. The next day, he took out two silver coins and said to the innkeeper, I'll put in two, will you put in two? No, that's not what he said. He took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. I love this story, and over the years, I've nicknamed the Samaritan. You'll just have to forgive me, because this will freak some of you out. I just nicknamed him Sammy. And so I always think of him as like either Antonio Banderas or Morgan Freeman. <laughs> Don't you think? Wouldn't that be a good Sammy? I, I can just see. Can't you see Morgan Freeman just going, okay? And so what I love about Sammy is that he's the kind of guy who just automatically helped. It was no big deal. And he just, he, he didn't say, I think I'll do a good deed today. Um, if you dropped a piece of paper, he wouldn't hesitate. He'd just pick it up and just wink at you and just go on. There's no impression management here, which is a lot of way we go through life, caring a whole lot about what other people think of us. None whatsoever. I love Sammy because he's, he's not a big deal hero. He wasn't a martyr. He didn't have an M on his head. He didn't try to save the world himself. He asked the innkeeper for some help. He probably had to cancel his business, and he took care of this guy. Um, Sammy was a giver, not a taker. He didn't make things complicated. He didn't stand on the road and argue with himself, because this is what I do sometimes. Should I? Shouldn't I? Well, if I do this, I'll do it. Da -da, da -da. By the time I'm done, seven other people have come by and helped him. You know, I've missed out on a lot of opportunities, standing on the side of the road, trying to figure out what I should do next. He was full of empathy. He saw someone beaten, and he didn't bother with who he was or what he was. He didn't say, if that were me, I'd want help. But putting it, instead, that's what he said. He put himself in the other person's shoes, stopping and thinking about how the other person feels. He didn't have to go somewhere special to serve, like the priest and the Levite did. Wherever he went, he served. No title. He didn't have to be a part of a big program. I mean, there are some people who would find fault with this parable and say, what did it matter that you just helped one guy? You know, you should have started a Jerusalem to Jericho service program and, and had the whole rescue thing. And, and, and they'll give you a hard time because you just helped one person instead of making it a big deal. I also like it that Sammy wasn't cheap or chintzy. He gave the innkeeper more than he needed. And he didn't ask the innkeeper to kick in. The thing that's most interesting to me about this parable, about this story that Jesus made up to help us see what love looks like, is that when the Jewish man woke up, 
And perhaps the innkeeper said, by the way, the person who helped you was a Samaritan. The Jewish man most likely said, I would rather be dead. That's the enmity that occurred between Jews and Samaritans. I would rather be dead than have this man's hands on me, than ride on his donkey, than take his money. And Sammy probably knew that. But he had a nudge. He had empathy. He had compassion. And let me suggest that Sammy led that rich and full, interesting life that the, that the lawyer who questioned Jesus wanted because he found that in serving, there was a richness there. So the first key to the inner life of a servant of Christ, and that's what I retitled the whole thing three days ago because I was overwhelmed. <laughs> the first key is you have to have that connection with God. If, if you're serving and it's obligatory, you're not, it's just not working for you, chances are you don't have a strong connection with God in relation to this. You're just doing it because no one else would do it. You're just doing it because people expect it of you. This isn't something you went to God and talked to God about. This isn't something God put in front of you. This isn't an empathy thing that overflowed from you. We call this the Good Samaritan, but that's really a, a downplay. It's the Compassionate Samaritan. That's what he was really like. He looked at him and saw him and loved him. Uh, that fullness of God is a life not of exhaustion, but a life filled with union of, with God. Jesus defined eternal life only once in scripture. John 17, three, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing Christ, and knowing in scripture isn't knowing about facts, it's about interactive relationship. It's about that internalization. It's about that deep connection with God, where all the things that we just sang are so true. So service is about inward, act, inward activity as well as outward action, and it flows from that generous heart. In our culture, largely, heart and motives don't matter. We live in a culture that what counts is product, not process. Results, not attitude. The goal is excellence and success, and it doesn't matter how you get there. The result of that myth as it enters the church is that we, we have some people who are doing the work of Christ without the heart of Christ. And when work is done without the heart of Christ, you can tell when you're the recipient. Those, those good works are done by grouchy, unregenerated people, and it really alienates people more than it helps them. That Burning out on service, which is often what happens to us, it, it's when our doing overshadows our being. When we go home from serving and we say, I'm glad that's over, rather than God, thank you for touching my heart through this person and that person. Thank you for how I saw you today in the face of this person or that person. 
All service needs to be immersed in conversation with God. Oh God, I saw you today. Thank you. And maybe it was in the, in the face or the person of, the, of, of a team member. So we burn out on service when we're running on no reserves and we just wear ourselves out. The inner resources aren't there. But when we stay connected with God through practices like solitude and silence, when you've had time to just be with God and receive the goodness of God, there's going to be more compassion to flow out of you. When you get to participate in the worship that we did this morning and you, you have that wonderful sense of the greatness of God, you're more likely to want to serve. When you are able to pour out your heart to God when you're troubled, we're more likely to serve. The second key to that inner life of the servant of Christ is that those motives really matter. The passage that Crystal read to you is Matthew 6, 1 through 5. I'm going to read it to you in the message because it gets kind of gritty and interesting. I especially like the first line. Be especially careful when you're trying to be good. Isn't that true? You've met people who are trying so hard to be good. And it, it really borders on obnoxious because it's really about them trying so hard to be good. <clears throat> when we're rely, relying on the Holy Spirit, it is like the eagle, and you're on the, you found a warm current, and, and you're going, because the Spirit is holding you up. Be especially careful when you're trying to be good, so that you don't make a performance out of it. How was I? How did that look? Or you drive home thinking about, how was I? It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. When you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. You've seen them in action, I'm sure, play actors, I call them, treating prayer meeting and street corner alike as a stage, acting compassionate as long as someone is watching, playing to the crowds. They get applause, true, but that's all they get. When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks. Just do it quietly and unobtrusively. That is the way your God, who conceived you in love, working behind the scenes, helps you out. Now, generally, we aren't conscious that we're doing this. We aren't even aware that we're doing this. And I was surprised to discover that about myself. This would have been the very first time in 1991 when I met Dallas Willard. He'd been speaking at a conference, and I was one of the people in line at the end, and, and um, I happened to be the last one. And we were talking as we walked down the hall, and I was telling him how much I appreciated his books and, <clears throat> and the things that he said. And as I did that, I said, but, but I don't, and I forget how I did this, but I sort of apologized because I realized that I was... I kind of sounded like a groupie, you know, and then you're a little embarrassed. And I can't remember exactly what I said, but his response floored me. He said to me, why don't you consider not affirming anyone for a while and see what happens? I mean, is that the weirdest thing you've ever heard? Yes, don't encourage people. That's my spiritual gift, thank you. And I was, I really kind of thought, well, this guy, 
kind of weird, okay? You know, and I, I thought, I don't know what he meant by that. Because he had said, and see what happens. But after that, when I was with someone and I started to affirm them, I paused. And that's what most spiritual practices are about. You pause and you hear your heart. And I paused in the hearing my heart. You know what I heard? It's, it was mixed motives. On the one hand, I really did, do like encouraging people. And I really love commenting on something you probably haven't seen, but I saw. On the other hand, what I heard was, I want you to like me. I want you to think I'm spiritual because I notice all these things. And these two sets of motives get all intertangled. And that's usually the way it is. We have a whole set of motives going on. And after that, when, during my pause, I would hear myself ask these questions. Jan, is God leading you to do this? Do I have a heart for God or is this a heart for me? Um, and it was really good for me that he said that. That pausing to look at my heart is so important. I'm guessing that most of you in this room, you love God and you sincerely want to serve him. And then there's another part of us that's trying to prove that we're good enough. We have a divided heart. Psalm 8611 says, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. And so this got me going, oh, and a whole heart search to see what was going on. Here are some of the things I discovered. I'm sure none of you have ever discovered these things in yourself. One is that even though I would have told you this wasn't true, there were instances where I served basically to impress others. How did I know that? It was really tough for me to say no if I knew that it would bring me some recognition or bring someone in my family recognition. It kind of fed my image. And you may say, well, I'm sure I don't do that. Okay, so let me ask you. If you're a person who does pray aloud in a group, have you ever thought, she took what I was gonna say? <laughs> then you have to ask yourself, who am I praying to? The group, or am I praying to God? So I caught that in myself. Another thing I noticed is that I, told, I would have told you it wasn't for external rewards, but it sort of was, because I would just drop in little lines, like someone would uh, ask about this or that, and, and I would mention, well, while I was there at church, and they would know I was there like in off hours, working overtime. And I just kind of threw in that little introductory phrase, and I heard it, and I went, oh, gee, impression management. I noticed that service is affected by moods and whims. And I still have to be careful of this one because I would much rather serve alongside you if you're fun and pleasant. And it's, that's what's so interesting about Sammy. He served someone who hated him in a territory where he was hated. Am I doing this just to feel good or am I doing this because God is nudging me to do this. And then another thing that I noticed is that often 
we do acts of service to blot out God's voice demanding that we change. It has been said, it is easier to serve than to be changed. And that's what this weekend is all about. It's about transformation of, of the soul. And I, at that point in my life, I was on the staff of a writer's conference that was really growing, um, was very successful, and um, I just kind of, I got to know the um, director pretty well, and I was, I was kind of surprised when they fired her, the overseeing organization. And then I thought about it. I thought about how we would all work so hard on the staff, and then we would get together and she would, she would be okay, oh, she'd be okay, and then all of a sudden she'd just blow up at one of us. And then, and, and then that would happen year after year. And I thought to myself, how does this work? Why does she let herself keep doing this? And you know how I think it worked? Is that by the end of the conference, she had forgotten what she had done. And you know what she was hearing? This is the best writer's conference I've ever been to. If you get enough praise, you won't hear your heart. You will hear the praise and you will be convinced that that is the whole story. There won't be a conversation with God about why did I say that to her? That that whole thing kind of takes over and we don't hear God's voice. So that second thing is that motives really matter and that we always want to ask God, show me my own heart, give me, give me light into my soul, show me what I need, where is it that I need to grow? Service is a character forming practice. We think we're going there just to, you know, bless somebody, and we are. But God is also blessing us back by us seeing what is it that sets me off? What is it that is hard for me? What is it that God is inviting me into? And, then, and, and that's really a self-forgetful kind of thing as far as lack of self-promotion and all that kind of thing because my third key to the inner life of a servant sounds just the opposite. And that's being passionate about what you're doing. Most people who are passionate about what they're doing are not self-forgetful, are they? They seem like they're really almost kind of full of themselves. But to be passionate and self-forgetful at the same time is such a beautiful thing. The Apostle Paul was very good at this. He is self-forgetful in, in Philippians 3.10 um, through 14. Verse uh, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So he, here he's focused on that interactive life with God. The fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, what? Whoa, this is self-forgetful. This is very sacrificial. Becoming like him in his death, so dying to self. Dying to self is just dying to selfishness. God doesn't want the death of yourself. God treasures your very self. So God isn't looking for that, but God is looking for us to be able to die to my selfishness, my self-absorption, my self-importance, the fact that I usually put my needs first. So he says, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. 
He's so selfless. Not that I have already obtained this or have already been made perfect. Here comes the passion. Are you ready? But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Now, that's kind of different for most of us, isn't it? It's more like we have seven things that I do, 10 things that I do. And when he says forgetting what is behind, we usually think that means forgetting that he had persecuted Christians and was so terrible. But if you look at the context and you go back to the earlier verses in that chapter, you know what was behind? That he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he knew the law. He was important and smart and looked up to. So in the context, forgetting what is behind is forgetting all of that self-importance, the thing that made him him, and straining toward what is ahead. That's some of the things that we talked about earlier in the, in the nine o'clock session. Beatings, stonings, being in prison, forgetting what is behind and how everyone looked up to me and straining towards what is ahead, giving my life for Christ. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Where does that kind of passion come from? I, I think it's very interesting that after um, the Apostle Paul went through his big conversion experience, he wasn't wonderful and cool. He went off to Arabia for three years. And all we know is that he's out there in Arabia doing solitude and silence, Dallas used to say he had to unlearn so many things. He had to practice different things. He had to be a different person. To cultivate that inner life of a servant, we need to have that conversational life with God. We need to have times of Sabbath where we do nothing. That is so hard because we want to get things done can I just be with God? Can I just hang out with God? Sometimes in my spiritual direction practice, I have a lot of people who are um, clergy on staff. And you know, they just have such a hard time with Sabbath. And so I ask this question that just makes them crazy. I say, what would it look like for you to go and have fun with God? And they sit there for a while. What would that look like? And I said, well, that, that's called a day off. I said, if the best you can do is 10 minutes, start there. Start with the morning. Start with whatever. But if you aren't able to do that, and God knew that we were going to be productivity-holics. <laughs> and so when he created the 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 world, he said, mm, I think we'll have a day of rest. And God wasn't tired. God just knew what you and I would be like. <laughs> and said, I'm going to help these folks out. I'm going to put this in place. It's the built into the universe, the, this rhythm of life. So that inner life of the servant is those solitude and related practices. But it's also about community and community that has some depth to it. Not just asking, what, do you did, what did you do last weekend or what did you buy at the mall, but really partnering for a union of minds, willing to be vulnerable with each other. 
Jesus thought community was so important. He had three short years to put all of this in place, and he spent an inordinate amount of time just seeking people out. He, he, you know, you don't give a nickname to someone that you just met, right? That's pretty much what he does with Peter. He gives him a nickname right away. Um, he invites him, he, well, he did what your mom has told you never to do. He invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house. Because the, according to the text in Luke 19, he's on his way through Jericho. He's not planning to stop. And boom, here's a guy up in a tree, mostly because if he had been in the crowd, he probably would have been stabbed. That's how much Zacchaeus was hated as an extortionist. He sees the extortionist, is eager to hear from him, and I'm here. The interruption, the change of plans, and he's there for him. You see that he and the apostles are always slipping over to the other side of the lake. You kind of wonder what they were doing, you know, Frisbee, whatever. Um, he, like Paul, had this traveling seminary. Okay, here we go. We've got these guys. And so community is not about sentimental feeling. It's actually quite gritty. It's about looking at the other person. And, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 talks about always protecting, always trusting. Sometimes I have to protect people for myself and not say that thing that I was going to say. But being there for people, giving up power and control. But also that leaning on each other. I served um, at the Samaritan Center in Simi Valley for uh, a long time. And there was one time where, I'll call her Peggy. She came in and she was um, pregnant. And I already knew that she had two kids in foster care that could not be adopted. And I knew that she used some drugs. And you know, it just upset me. What, one more kid going into foster care? One more kid, how could this be? And I remember I took care of everything I had to do and I went off to find the director of Virginia and I said, do you know about Peggy? And she said, Yes, she said, I took her to get her prenatal vitamins last night. And Virginia hands me the soup spoon and there's two big things of soup and Virginia could make soup out of any combination of canned goods. And so she's stirring her soup and I'm stirring the soup and we're standing there next to each other. We sobbed so hard that our shirts got wet. Just sobbed together and then after a while I looked at her and I handed her the spoon and I said, thanks and went back. Being able to rely on others keeps you compassionate and passionate and selfless. Virginia was 10 times more of a saint than I'll ever be. I really needed her in my life. And I could go there and confess that I was so angry and she could hear me. In the middle of all of this is the discipline of secrecy. Secrecy is about not speaking about your good deeds, not letting your good deeds be made known. You're not trying to hide your good deeds, but you don't do them to be seen. And again, for Matthew 6, that, that passage that Crystal read, it talked about that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. And usually we think, those are disorganized people. And we use that term 
to kind of deride them. But I think this is really funny. I think Jesus was actually much more funny than we give him credit for. We've just heard it so much. So you've got to picture this. So the right hand is over here doing good deeds, you know, taking, putting out the, the bagels and the cream cheese and all that creamy yogurt, all that stuff. And the left hand goes, I don't know what right hand's doing, man. I'm over here. I have no idea. Well, why? Because right hand does it so secretively and doesn't go, you who left hand, I'm over here doing cool stuff. You know, right hand has got it all covered, but they're not letting anyone know what they're up to. And left hand's going, I think right hand's lazy, man. He's not doing anything. That's what it's like. That's the discipline of secrecy. I, I'm just going to do this, and it's, and it's going to be joy. So I want to, whenever I talk about secrecy, I love to just tell this story. So this is about a nun and she's in her novitiate, which she's learning to be a nun. And this is very cool, because she's practicing secrecy. When I was in the novitiate in my early 20s, I decided to do one small act of kindness each day that was completely unknown to anyone. And I love the way she writes this, because she's not patting herself on the back. She's having a good time with God. So I would keep my eyes peeled for something helpful I could do that no one else would see. I wanted to be absolutely sure that I was doing it for no one but God, whom I loved with a kind of simple and quite passionate fervor. There's your passionate and self-forgetfulness all in one person. I made beds and turned them down. I folded clothes, I tidied at least one a day, and no one knew. The very infinitesimal act each day gave me enormous joy it gave me a kind of inner excitement to do this only for God, a secret between me and God. It kept me alert to the small needs of others. I just love this because she has an enormous connection with God. She's so forget, self-forgetful and yet also so passionate about what she was doing. And maybe that's, you'd like to think about that. You'd like to ask God, might there be some some discipline of secrecy for you. To go home and, and look at things around the house that need to be done, and it might be hard to keep it a secret, but give it a try. See if you can pull off being the one who puts this away, and puts it, who cleans up the mess that no one else cleaned up. And if you do, don't pat yourself on the back. Just, just say to God, no one's gonna know, isn't this interesting? You can look around your neighborhood or your place of work, what could be done in the spirit of Christ that would make a difference and that you could do it incognito and no one would know? If you ask Jesus, he will give you an idea. Identify someone in need, and maybe an elderly person, a single mom, young couple, someone who's ill, and provide what they need to help them out. It could be a gift of money, it could be arranging a ride, whatever that might be, to be able to do that. And when you do this, you find a way to be with God where there is great simplicity and great passion, which makes me think of something that helped me many years ago, the prayer of Bob Pierce, who started World Vision. The prayer was, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God, because I was mostly heartbroken by the things that broke my heart and didn't go well for me. 
but to begin to ask God, what breaks your heart that breaks the heart of God? Where does God's pain and my pain intersect? Where does God's mystery and my purpose meet? Instead of doing whatever I am asked to do, doing what God has invited me to do instead. When I began to think this way, I changed. I was a writer at that time, just like I am now, and I changed everything I was writing about because I wanted to write about the things that broke my heart, that broke the heart of God. I was doing a lot of service in different places, and in the middle of it, God just woke me up to that I needed to be at the Samaritan Center, and that's where I went. And there were people in my church who thought it was stupid that I did that. You're just enabling people. And I just, you know, it, I just had, you know, the nudge from God was everything. And it meant everything to me. And so I didn't care what people said. No big deal. And you may say, okay, this is a lot. You've talked about motives, talked about passion, all this stuff. What in the world? What am I supposed to do with this? Well, I would just suggest that you just ask God. And I really mean it that simple. My, I just want to close with this example. This is one of my favorites. In the early 1800s, the conditions of prisons in Britain were such that you, prisoners didn't have food unless the family brought food. Prisoners didn't have clothes unless the family brought clothes. They just sat there. And there was a rich Quaker lady named Elizabeth Fry, and she was married with 11 children. Oh my goodness. And what happened was that she, she happened to hear about something related to prisoners, so she happened to be in the prison, and, and she saw what was going on there. And she was horrified. So she started, she continued to visit this one woman prisoner, but then as she would go, she would, she took some food the first time, and then she passed it out while she was there, and she went, okay, that was good. And then she said to her friends, I, do you have any clothes that you could give me that I could take? And, and so then the next time she has food under one arm and clothes under the, the next arm, and her friends are, they are just scandalized by this. What are you doing going into this prison? It's dirty, there's disease, it's terrible. We better go with you. And so you had a whole army of women who go in there. It is said about Elizabeth Fry that she was the instigator of prison reform in Britain. And it happened as she began praying for prisoners and then went to see the one prisoner. So I would just, I would just urge you, you know, you could take the handout and set it in front of Jesus and say, what? <laughs> what do I need to know? What is it that you're telling me today? And I have to warn you, I'm going to pray that you do this. <laughs> because it will make your life more open, adventurous, reflective. It will increase your dependence on God. Your life is going to be so much more interesting. And so may God bless you in that. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.